Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I am so thrilled today to introduce Peggy O'Neill and to have her join the conversation. Peggy, wonderful to have you here. Well, thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. Okay, so what I'm going to do firstly is step through your bio. And in this series, we're, um, we're titling the series No More Secrets, Extraordinary Leaders Share Their Journey from Good to Great. As I step through Peggy's bio, uh, the audience is going to get a really good uh, understanding of just all the incredible achievements that you, you have so far, Peggy. So Peggy O'Neill was named Melbourneian of the Year for 2021 and became the Chancellor of RMIT University on the 1st of January 2022. In June 19, Peggy was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for her services to Australian rules football, financial services, law and women in leadership roles. Peggy has been the president of the Richmond Football Club since October 2013, having served on the club's board since 2005, and was president when the Richmond Football Club won the 17, 19 and 2020 premierships. I note at this point all Richmond fans in the audience will be saluting <laughs> you and the team, Peggy. Um, in June 19, Peggy was appointed to the Australian Institute of Sport, Athlete, Wellbeing and Engagement Advisory Committee and from January 2020 has been a member of the AFL Mental Health Steering Committee. She's co-chair of the Victorian chapter of the Minerva Network, which develops mentorships between leading Australian businesswomen and professional women athletes. In December 18, Peggy was made an honorary Doctor of Laws by Swinburne University for her work in gender equality and developing women sport leaders. Peggy has specialised in superannuation and financial services law for more than 25 years and is presently a consultant to Landers and Rogers and was previously a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills for 14 years. Peggy has an incredible list of achievements and contributions that include three years on Victoria's Ministerial Council on Women's Equality and in January 2020 became a director of VicHealth. Peggy has been a non-executive director of several companies, including chair of Vanguard Superannuation, a director of Infrastructure Specialist Asset Management, is on the board of Women's Housing Limited, on the Investment Advisory Panel of Home for Homes, an initiative of Big Issue, also on the board of Australia Dementia Network Limited and on the board of Fulbright Australia. Peggy is a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, a member of Chief Executive Women and the Melbourne Forum. Peggy, you are so incredibly generous with your time and so many of those roles, a number of our listeners won't realise are voluntary. So there is a deep community spirit um, that runs through you. And as I hand over to you, um, you know, for our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, I'd love you to take us through that background and, you know, hopefully we can find out where that deep community spirit comes from. Oh, thank you, uh, Melissa. Um, well, maybe I'll start at the beginning because <laughs> um, uh, immediately your listeners will tell from my accent that I didn't grow up in Australia. I, I um, grew up in small towns uh, in the coal mining areas of West Virginia and Virginia up in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, when I was born and for several years after that, my, my father was a coal miner and um, and while it was quite remote when I look back on it, it was a wonderful childhood. And a lot of people will idealize their growing up years as saying, oh, there was so much freedom, but there, uh, but there was. Um, and I guess that's part of small town life. And um, my parents were not educated in the formal sense, but they valued education. Um, and so from every memory that I have, is of them encouraging me and my younger sister um, to get good grades, um, to value being in school. And in fact, um, I ever look back and there was a, a small school when, and when I was just turned five years old, there was no kindergarten, there was nothing like that. And it was a town of about 25 houses, maybe wow. 70 people. And it was all around um, a, a coal mine and the coal company owned the houses and there was a school. And um, all of the children a little older than me were all going to this two-room schoolhouse, one to seven, year seven. And uh, so they said, well, Peggy can come too and watch you know, the film strips. And I had no playmates. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just kept going to school. I just 
And I remember telling the teacher, but I don't know how to read. And she said, well, that's what we will teach you how to read. And um, so that was sort of the opening of the big wide world through reading and, uh, and why I so appreciate education and literacy and, and what it does. And uh, my mother kept saying, you know, education changes lives in a generation. Education mm -hmm. changes lives in a generation. And I think in a way she was seeing herself had she had the opportunities that she, she and my father were providing to me and my sister. So I started um, school <laughs> in a two-room schoolhouse in the, in the wilds of West Virginia uh, in a town that doesn't exist anymore because the mine closed and, and the houses all fell down and there you mm -hmm. go. Um, and uh, so that's where it started. But I think in small towns, and Australia would be the same, is people rely on each other in a way that... Um, uh, is quite unique um, because there aren't a lot of services provided, you know, and someone will have this piece of machinery and somebody will have, you know, this know-how and, and everybody borrows and takes care of one another. And, um, and I remember my mother was always saying that there was always someone worse off than you and you can mm -hmm. always help. And she was a great example of volunteerism. And I think that's comes across to, through what I value is because she was such a wonderful example uh, and looking back on it, I thought we didn't have much, but she kept saying, we got more than some. So we have to help those people. And so she was a, a great volunteer. And, and in fact, after I um, uh, graduated from high school, she went back to high school. She finished high school after I did. Brilliant. Uh, so I love that. Her. And then she started college courses, university courses. Um, so it was, um, so she she, she raised her two daughters, uh, and so and my, my dad was a great encouragement, uh, encourager too, but, um, but she really followed through on, you know, I said it was valuable, and no matter what my age, I'm going to go back and do this, and, and ended up being a part-time teacher. Uh, so it's, uh, it's sort of interesting how I look back, and you don't really, I think, anyone fully appreciate what you're being taught by example until some time has passed. So when you ask about where the community comes from, I have no doubt um, that it was because my mother and my father's commitment to uh, helping out in those small communities. And my father coached, you know, um, boys teams. There were no girls teams, but um, but he taught me how to play baseball, you know, because he didn't have sons. And so I think my love of sport came from him. And um, and even as you know, as he was older, and I would go back from Australia to visit, he and I would watch every football game through the Christmas New Year period. It's something that you can do and relate to when you haven't had those day-to-day -day sort of experiences. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's sort of where I came from originally. And, um, and through that, um, you know, you can do anything you want kind of um, approach to life that my parents instilled. Um, I went to law school and I kept thinking, I'll figure out what I'm going to do after I finish my degree, <laughs> yep. something else will come along. It can be law, um, although I did like reading and writing. And I figured along the way that law is one of those professions that, um, that you can read and write for a living. And mm -hmm. it's not exactly like that, but a lot of it is, you know, expression and, and accuracy of, um, of words and those kinds of things. And a lot of reading. Um, and a lot of reading. And sometimes it, it wasn't the kind of reading I had in mind, but it's a lot of reading is involved. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I went to law school and but reflected back on people who have shaped your life besides you know, my parents and their keen community spirit. Um, I was thinking recently that I had um, a Girl Scout leader. I was a Girl Scout, you could imagine. <laughs> and in small towns, you know, there's very little social um, things to do. And we'd moved to a bigger town by then, where it was about a thousand people. And um, I had a Girl Scout leader who was a chemist, a pharmacist. Oh. And, uh, and I re she was probably the only woman I knew with a, a business and a professional mm -hmm. degree. And I used to babysit her children. And uh, and we became, you know, quite close. She and my mother were very good friends. And, um, and she said, so you're going to university. So what do you think you'll do? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'll get there and I'll figure it out. And, and she said, well, think about getting a profession because you can always take care of yourself. Mm. And 
I've reflected on those words a lot, um, again, with hindsight, but I remember thinking, huh, well, I like that idea of financially being able to take care of yourself. I was, I, I didn't know exactly what would happen to me, but I always imagined that I would take care of myself. Maybe that's a self-sufficient thing that comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I got my law degree, I thought, well, now I have this credential <laughs> Uh, that I could probably get a job doing something anywhere. Uh, and it's it, the words have come back to me, and I'm sure she probably never thought much about them again. Uh, but those little things that sort of strike a chord and you put away in the recesses of your mind, mm-hmm. and then they come back from time to time. And, um, and occasionally I'll hear from, you know, people that were young lawyers with me, or, and they'll say, well, I remember when you said... And I don't remember I said that, no. uh, but I think, well, maybe that's what it is. You know, someone is just open to suggestion. You say the right thing at the right time and it helps them decide what they're going to do. So um, makes me think, Peggy, of um, my mum. I saw her, my parents divorced when mum was 40 and I mm-hmm. saw her, she was living overseas, came back to Australia, rebuilt a career, went to uni, studied to become an accountant. And I remember her saying to me after that experience, and I was probably 16 at the time, um, whatever you do, make sure you can support yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and, and I, it, it, those, those words were so important. And then it turned out that I, I landed on something that I really liked. And so while I was waiting to sort out what I was going to do other than law, is um, I, I was practicing law and I loved it. I loved the clients and helping solve problems. And uh, so I, I kept thinking, oh, you know, I was meant for something else. And in the end I thought, no, I think I was meant for law. Lawyers are notorious for saying, oh, I'll be doing something else soon. Yes. But, uh, but I started uh, realizing I'm not a risk taker. I'm not gonna start a business. I'm going to, um, uh, just steady as you go, read and write for a living, and yeah. and this is it. And uh, so, next thing I knew, thirty years had passed, and I was still practicing law and uh, and enjoying it. But uh, but along the way, um, I moved to Australia, obviously. And I understand then, that was a little holiday, and you took a holiday in Greece, and then that's up- right, <laughs> that's right. Uh, because part of um, uh, reading and and uh, the horizon opening up was. Um, I needed to see the world after being in a small town. And uh, I was 21 before I saw the ocean. So it it, it was inland. You know, I'd seen a lake. I'd never seen the ocean. Um, So uh, I really got the travel bug. And uh, and with the American two-week vacation, there's only so many places that you can go. It's unlike the Australian big break, which which everybody accepts or... Um, you know, between uh, uni and work or, or you save all your leave and take the, mm. you know, six months off or something. Um, and everybody accepts it. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody does that. Um, but anyway, I was on my two-week holiday and I was uh, in Greece and met an Australian backpacker on that big Australian trip. And, um, and he said he would be coming to the States in a few months. And, and I thought, yeah, but he did. And the next year we got married and I came to Melbourne and moved to Richmond and still live in Richmond, picked my team as Richmond. Uh, That wasn't his team, uh, but I thought I'm going to pick the name of my suburb, which I think a lot of um, newly arrived people would, who were trying to belong. And the fact that I love sports so much, Mm -hmm. I thought, well, this is the sport everybody's playing. And once I started work, I thought I have to join the footy tipping and start to educate myself about this. And it was a, it was a great spectacle. And when I went, and saw it in person for the first time. Uh, I thought, oh, I, I really like this. It's 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 much better than American gridiron in the sense of the ground so big and it's so athletic. There's so many people on the ground. I just thought, how many people are playing Incredible. out there? Yeah. Um, so that uh, that's how I ended up in in Melbourne. And uh, I'm dying to ask who your husband supported at the time. Hawthorne. And is he still Hawthorne today? Yeah. Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's my ex-husband now. Oh, your ex. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, that's, that's fine. Stay hold Yes, on. but he's still Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I didn't like their song and it, yeah. 
because you just you just pick your team and you stick with it. And Richmond wasn't Richmond wasn't any good at the time. And I remember saying to people, but but they'll come good again. I didn't know what kind of weight I was in for or that I would ever have the kind of involvement I ended up having. I just loved the game. I was a big fan and um, and then got more interested in the business. So it was it was hard to settle in though, right? Like in terms of landing in in Richmond. It, it, well, it was. Um, I, I think there's so much um, good when I look back, so much positive, um, so, so many positive aspects to changing countries. I think it was, um, you know, your theme about the good to great. <laughs> I don't know about greatness, but I remember thinking I've become such a better lawyer by changing countries mm. uh, that all those assumptions and all that sort of familiarity is gone and you're going to have to start all over. And I guess I was uh, young enough to still have a lot of time to uh, to have a career. Uh, but I was also it had a you know, little bit of experience practicing law in America. And, um, and so I knew the significance of some of the things they had a, a context that when you're a student and going through, you don't really, or I didn't really understand the context of some of the concepts. Um, and so I was the mature age student who was doing extra reading and hanging out in the library. <laughs> and I had time to do that. I only had to take three courses and I didn't know how to get a job. So I really threw myself into study, which was great fun for someone who likes to study. And um, so I, I, but, but at the same time, you lose a lot of confidence mm. um, only because you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, and you think, well, is that something everybody knows except me? Mm. Uh, and so you go from a place of feeling very secure in what you do to thinking, um, I'm not quite so sure. Who's going to want me? Yeah. Or how do you get there? Mm. How do you get a job here? And mm. the, will my qualifications count for anything? Um, so, and it was also at this, the 1991 was a recession time. Yes. And yes. I thought, why would anybody hire me if they could hire an Australian law graduate? You know, I've yes. taken these three courses that were prescribed for me to take, but th that's <laughs> about this much. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there was no internet, there was no being able to get information about places uh, easily. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but it was the way that it was. So you just adapted to the way that it was and, and things took a bit longer. And, um, and so I started interviewing for jobs after the first semester. And, um, and I was surprised that Australia had lots of people from lots of countries working in law firms. And I, so I had my assumptions about America and America would just want people who've been through their system and passed their exams. And, uh, mm. but Australia was much more open to people from other countries. And, and I think especially um, there were a lot of several people from the UK when I joined um, Herbert Smith Freehills, uh, but I was the only American as I know, but as a federal system and, it was based on America's federal system, whereas the UK didn't have a federal, doesn't have a federal system. So, um, so there were some things, but uh, I remember thinking, I don't even know how to use the telephone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what are the, we got lots of numbers here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it, and I didn't know about barristers. There's all those sort of fundamental things that people know. And I remember taking an exam at uh, Melbourne University and the question had this assumption built in that you would know what these terms meant. It had nothing to do, it was, you know, law exams, you set up a problem and you have a certain set of facts. But I didn't understand the facts. And it was the first time in my life where I had been the outsider. Yes. And I remember writing, because that was the days where we actually hand wrote our, <laughs> our exams, and <laughs> just uh, saying, I think that there's bias here because you're assuming that all of us grew up and we know what this organization does. Fascinating. I, I don't. Yeah. But then I started the lawyer. If it means this, then this. If it means this, then this. But it really struck me um, that changing countries was as easy for me as it would be for anyone. You know, I was educated. I was white. I spoke English. Yes. And it was it was a really stressful, difficult experience. 
so I can only imagine for people who have none of those attributes, who try to maneuver or understand the system so that they can, um, uh, well, that they can start being a contributing member of society as soon as possible, how hard it is. And uh, undoubtedly, there's, there's more support and it's easier now that so many things can be done online. But I remember spending mornings standing in queues at immigration, just trying to hand over one piece of paper and seeing yeah. people around me who didn't speak English, who didn't even understand what the paper was asking for. Um, and so all of those things contributed to, um, you know, you really have to want to be here yeah. <laughs> to go through uh, all of that. And perhaps had I, had I known, but, uh, but in the end, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be a dual citizen. And Peggy, involved with um I just want to go because it was this time I think that you got involved with Richmond very early so you selected them as your team how quickly did you I think you were involved with the inaugural female supporters group with Richmond yes um well I I, I became aware as I became a very enthusiastic fan um that several of the AFL clubs had women supporter groups looking back on it, it was like it was a bit of well, they're there, you know, we'll have the women over here. Yes. Uh, but I was just thrilled to think that um, there was a group of like-minded women and I could meet them and, and see what they did. And, um, and it was called Hafey's Ambush and uh, named for Tommy Hafey, Tommy Hafey. Was a great coach. And, and his wife, Maureen, was one of the founders and uh, a good friend of mine, Lynn Grigg, was good friends with Maureen. And so the two of them did it. And uh, it was a way where I met quite a few other Richmond supporters, including people that I still see. That group is uh, no longer going because things sort of opened up and there were more ways that women could contribute and women's yes. fans were a very important part of. But, um, uh, but I remember thinking, um, well, this is a way just to learn more about the club and the players and everybody seems to know everybody's numbers from from 1950 and yes. and how many goals they kicked and all of that so I was trying to soak up as much as I could and uh and um, get a bit more involved so I did join that as as soon as I could and stayed a member until it was disbanded so it was it was a first step along the way first step so I um am really keen to understand not a new conversation but I'm keen to understand from your perspective when you think about leaders do you think they're born or made well I think in a way both both come together I know that's an easiest thing I think it depends if you're born in a place where opportunities come to you so it's it's if you mean born with this innate quality, um, I'm not so sure, but I think, you know, accident of birth, the place and your circumstance means a lot. And then when you say, are you they made? Uh, I think if the opportunities are there, if someone encourages you and identifies the opportunities for you, and you have been given a chance to develop skills so that you have a chance of success and I, I guess one's career things and others, you know, community things. But so I think um, it's sort of a combination of both. But then if the question's about, do you have this innate quality uh, of competitiveness or service or, um, I, I guess I, I come down more on the side you're made um, because I think about how do you, Get, va get values that we regard as positive values, how to get them instilled. And it's because usually there's an example or, um, or, or you have, a, I guess, a bit of spare time that you're not so worried about personal survival, um, yes. about do I have a place to live? You know, as a child, do I have food? Do I, um, do I have my parents? Um, so I think that um, if you have all of those support systems, it's probably easier to be a leader. Um, if you don't, it's harder. It doesn't mean you can't, but it means that um, it's not going to be so easy for you. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes that's, those are people that we let down. 
Yes. Uh, because I look back and I think, well, my circumstances, uh, I didn't have access to lots of things that, you know, are sort of artsy and ballet and all that. But the underpinning was I had parents who wanted me to do well. Yes. Uh, and they didn't know what that looked like, but whatever I wanted to do, that they were there. So I, I guess I had sort of come down the side of being made. So if we land there, can you think of pivotal moments in your career that have shaped you, Peggy, along the way? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, moving to Australia, mm. uh, as scary as it was, it made me think, um, well, you, you, you can do that mm. and that you have to rethink uh, all the assumptions that you had about what you would be doing and where you would be living. And, um, and as much as you, as I liked the adventure of being overseas and always wanted to live somewhere other than as a tourist, Yes, I didn't know it'd be for life. <laughs> and it didn't mean I wasn't homesick because I left a pretty good situation, uh, very close knit family. Um, but at the same time, I, I realized that almost every day was this big growth opportunity. Um, and I didn't sort of start out every day going, wow, this is a chance to go learn something. It was more like, well, I'll just go out and hope that I, <laughs> that I don't um, do something horrible and commit malpractice today. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I think looking back on it, that was a big one. And, um, uh, and for the first three years, it was really difficult to deal with homesickness. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I was making friends. I was being integrated into the community. I had made a real effort to, to get out when I was waiting to go to uh, university because I had the assumption that everybody went to school on the same timetable that North America did. Of course. It never occurred to me. So I arrive in August thinking school will start in September and doesn't start till February. Uh, so I had a bit of time, but immediately I thought I can't sit around waiting for my you know, then husband come home from work mm. so I volunteered and that goes in one of my interests in so I volunteered at Amnesty International for quite a while made some friends people I still see but I thought I have to sort of find a place here I have to find something that I could have an anchor to and um, which means I need to meet people uh, and as soon as I can I'd like to get a job and that'll sort of increase the uh, the group of people that I know and and I can understand the place a little bit better absolutely but every time I thought I've got a handle on this <laughs> I realized Australia was quite different than the United States and um, uh, as a tourist you think well we speak English and generally it's the same but um, but culturally the more you're here the more different it is very different mm -hmm. yeah so I think that was probably the big one um, I think another one was Again, career related was um, uh, deciding that I didn't want to be a partner in a law firm anymore and that I wanted to start out on another uh, career, being on yes. boards, um, working you know, part-time as a lawyer and stepping out as a partner was because um, I said it to, <laughs> I never set out for that to be an achievement. And I realized that once you're in as a partner, it's equally hard to get out. <laughs> <laughs> because you have responsibilities. You know, I, I had wonderful clients and I adored working for them. Uh, but then I, I was also thinking, I'm helping other people with their careers, but I'm not learning anything new. Mm -hmm. And I really want to have a decade to, to start something new. So I'll play the long game. I'll see what happens. And, um, and people had told me that until you step out of the law, you won't be taken seriously as you're really going to do something else because um, you'll always have, you know, your clients will be their big, yes. their big responsibility. And um, so I, I did that and, and things started coming my way just as they predicted. And uh, in the first couple of boards I was asked to join, I stayed with them for you know, nine year maximum um, for both of them. And then other things started coming my way. So I've, I've been fortunate. Um, there's some things you, know, you apply for and you don't get. Um, but, uh, but generally I've been able to be involved with things I'm really interested in and, um, and that's, you know, energizing. <laughs> Do you see, cause I can, I mean, clearly, clearly, um, a couple of passions that stand out are sport and women in leadership. 
do you do you believe there's a strong connection between the two or what what do you see as the connection uh, i do i do think that there's a connection between the two um, i think sport is a great platform to um, to bring about social change and i think that how women are are treated or regarded at sport because it's such a uh, a high profile uh, and it's sort of you know integral to the Australian character sport of all kinds you know it's not Australian rules football it's it's everything from you know swimming and cricket and all those things that make people proud to be Australian a lot of that hinges on how well this the international sporting um, teams have done um, so I but I think that when sporting heroes talk is it gets cut through that often doesn't come from anything else. And so when you talk about women and having a place in the world, um, I think the respect that sports shows women carries over to respect that society shows women or improves, I guess it gives you an opportunity to get the message out about equality. Um, and when you see the, you know, the great results um, of the women's cricket team, for example, Yes. is the whole country takes pride in that men and women and so you th you so i think there is a connection with sport um and uh, that sport has a role to play in you know um stopping racism uh in promoting uh, understanding multicultural communities in um in, in you know, sexual preferences and gender identification and it's interesting that sport gets called on many times to provide that that leadership because there seems to be a gap yes and it's like well we can't sort of stand for everything but um but i think the sports connection with women and the expansion of sport almost all sporting codes that didn't have women teams that they now have them um is just letting people see women in a different light as elite athletes, uh, we've always had tennis stars, but that's sort of an individual sport. Mm. But playing you know, rough and tumble <laughs> rugby and Australian rules is uh, is a different thing. And cricket, I mean, they're just magnificent to watch. Mm. Uh, and I didn't grow up with cricket, <laughs> uh, so I do think that um, sport has a has a place in societal change and that um, the role for women and the visibility that it gives women and I think about the visibility that it gave me I didn't sort of seek that but it did mm. uh, and people started uh, at first you know who's she and she's not from here and we don't know who that is and and then after a while I guess you know success brings a certain gloss with it yes um, and uh, and now there are three other women presidents in AFL and uh, and this is my last year, I'm term limited out, but I, I was in a way fearful that there wouldn't be, be other women in place in those roles by the time I left. But now there are, and I think more will come. And, and a lot of that is because there have been more and more women uh, who have joined uh, AFL boards. Mm -hmm. And so the pipeline, um, you know, the, the pool gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The challenge is for that to happen at executive levels. And so I think that's uh, the next big challenge is to have women in the pipeline through the executive and through the coaching ranks. Um, Absolutely. So, so that's still to be done. But when that happens, then, so, then you see women doing things they've never done before. And it means that I, I, would, I would hope that society says, well, there are no limits, you know, that sport, if you break down the sporting barriers, then, well, maybe they can sit next to me in the office. <laughs> yes, yes. Peggy, um, you know, fascinating. I just wonder if there's something in the water with all these incredible female presidents and the success that they're having uh, leading, leading AFL clubs. You're an incredibly humble leader. Um, and so I know when I ask these questions, you'll defer to the team around you. But I really would love to understand you know, do you think there's anything um, that you've brought to the role, so style or traits or otherwise, um, that might be considered 
feminine um, traits. Do you think there's anything in that that has contributed to this extraordinary success? Um, well, I, I guess you think about personal qualities and, and I, and in a way, perhaps just by being a woman, you regard them as feminine. Yes. Um, but I think in a larger sort of view of things that a lot of traditional men's sport have been feminized. I mean, the idea about be who you are, uh, talk about your, uh, your fears, uh, be vulnerable, rely on your teammates. Mm. Whereas um, what's related to me that as little as 10 years ago, it's like, oh, you can't, you got to be the tough guy and you can't talk about what's going on at home and you can't do all of that. Um, but maybe that's a different generation of young men coming through. Yes. Um, but, but, but when I was became president, I realized, and maybe this is why I ended up liking law so much, is um, I my first reaction, if I'm thwarted in some way, isn't to get angry. I'm pretty unflappable. I mm-hmm. sort of go, mm, let me understand this a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that inside you're not sort of fluttery if someone you think, oh, they're attacking you personally. Yes. Or, um, but, but I think that that's sort of held, it in, held me in good stead that it's like, well, we'll just, we'll just keep going and we'll just see and nothing, we don't have to rush to make a decision. We'll take our time and let's get all the information. And, and so there's, maybe I was suited to the law because that is sort of in my nature. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, I remember in one interview and the word unflappable came and I just thought, I just don't get too upset about things um, and not to the extent of making rash decisions. Yes. And I've always thought that if you lose your good judgment because of emotion, good or bad, uh, you'll probably regret it in a couple of days. <laughs> and and, and so I think that... I was going to say sport is so highly emotive, though, isn't it? So it probably it does stand out. It uh, and and then I thought I I liked um, personally. I always like to have sort of a a good a good org chart, <laughs> a good understanding how organizations work. And I thought, well, this is my role, and I was very happy to do my role, and uh, and and understand that, and not to sort of get out of the lane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with any highly emotional thing, whether it's sport, lots of not-for-profits are the same way that, you know, I, I love the cause so much. I'm perfect person to help run this place. And you think, well, all of us love what we love our club or love our organization, but you got to put that aside and make decisions based on something else. And, um, and I think that I've been successful in, uh, putting together a, a board that thinks like that. Mm. And um, that's held us in good stead from, I guess, from the governance standpoint, I, I sort of had an idea of what I thought would work. And uh, little by little, we've ended up at that place. So um, I remember you sharing with me, you weren't so sure about taking on the president's role initially. And you had a, you had a conversation <laughs> with a, a wise colleague or friend of yours. I did um, <laughs> um, when it was first broached that I should um, you know, seek being president. I was thinking, oh yeah, that's right. And and immediately I, you know, as a lawyer, you're sort of the backroom person. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is so visible. And I loved being on the board. Uh, and I thought, oh, yeah. but it, but I knew there'd be media and. I knew that you have to give speeches all the time. And, and I was like, oh, I just, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and that's just, and my friend, um, I, I was talking to him who had had, a, you know, experience in, in Australian Rules football and all kinds of things. And, and uh, he said, you know, if you can't embrace every aspect of the new job, then just do what you're doing. It, it doesn't mean anything, but if you're going to take it on, you got to take it all on. You got to take it all. And uh, people ask you all kinds of questions. And he said, I think you can do it. But if you don't want to, that's another question. And I thought, oh, well, I guess that's true. But I realized in hindsight, a lot of hindsight, 
um, is you, you, you get so comfortable and so confident in what you're doing that the idea of shaking that up a bit um, shakes you up a bit. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and now when I look and think, I don't think anything could be quite as scary as walking out as the first woman president to a press conference. And having, I thought, oh, if they start asking me stats and all those who wore what number, I was just go, I, you, you win. I don't know that, but I don't think that's what I need to be president. I don't need to play it. I don't need to have grown up here. I just need to help in my, with my skills to help the club to that next level. And and my predecessor had worked hard to get the club in a pretty good financial position. We were still working on it, but we were on our way. Um, and so now, when things come to me, I think well, you know, the worst thing that happened is I'll be no good at it. And, mm-hmm. and they'll get rid of me or somebody will say, you know, you lost, you lost air support and, and I'll go back to where I was, where I was all comfortable and, um, or I'll find something else to do. And so it, it was a, a lesson that, you know, sort of initiation by fire. If you get through this, just think of, of what you will have learned about yourself. And, uh, and those first couple of years were, uh, were scary <laughs> and a lot of like oh I remember calling a good friend of mine saying you know I I just don't have the constitution for this I just I can't and she goes yes you can just come on come on <laughs> and I went okay I'll just show up another time and I think a lot of it is showing up and keep showing up and um and and knowing yourself and not trying to be someone else and yeah. slowly I think people came around to that uh, I was this person, and that was the president they were getting, and uh, and that wasn't. It was a different thing, but it wasn't a bad thing. I love that. I was going to draw attention to that sort of comment that you made, and you've just reinforced it yourself around um, stepping into the role, realizing that you don't have to step in as this image of what you or other people think that role is supposed to be. You know, you you went in as you. Yeah, and um, because we often, and this is, I guess, part of everybody's, um, you know, the unconscious biases that we have about, you know, you should look like this, that role is filled by somebody who's done these particular things, and so we limit our, um, uh, we limit our imagination in a way, um, instead of thinking about who, who could do the job, it's like, but they also have to be this they have to look like this and um and so i I thought i probably challenged a lot of people's idea of what a president should look like um just because there hadn't been one before and then when you hang in there and and uh, like i say there's a lot of gloss that comes when and a lot of gold dust attributed to you (laughs) when success comes and and no i I know I did my part, but yeah. it wasn't solely because of me, obviously. It's it's everything has to work together. And so when people say, oh, well, you know, it'll it'll be awful when now it's it's awful when you leave. I go, no, it won't be. You know, every everything else is still there. It'll be a great person who comes in and has a lot of fun and gets to do this instead. Um, but and that person won't look like me. That person will be their own person. And so we gotta let people be their own person and give them a chance. And sometimes it's uh, people, one don't like, they didn't like change when I came in and they won't like change when I leave, um, but it'll all be fine. It, it's, it'll all be fine. I remember you sharing with me as well, Peggy, and it sort of stayed with me around when you were looking to consider other females potentially for the board. And you had some good advice from a friend at one stage when you were, um, you know, you were trying to sort through that. Do you remember that conversation? Uh, I think that was a conversation about um, realizing I had my own assumptions. <laughs> yeah, yes. That I said, well, I can't find any. And, uh, and she said, well, maybe it's because you think they should be like you. And I went, oh, well, maybe I did think that. I never, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I didn't give people the latitude to, to, see what they had to offer is I was looking for someone who would be like me. Uh, and I thought we all fall into that. The easiest thing to do is to work with someone like you. Yes. Uh, and at the same time, you can wreck an organization 
by having everyone around you who thinks like you yes. or whose life experience is like you. Um, so um, so I've, I've come to realize, again, the unconscious biases that we all have. And it's not just about gender. It's about uh, roles. It's about, um, uh, you know, I have a, I'm biased toward positivity. Sometimes that's a bad thing, yes. um, you know, that I always think the best and, and then get surprised when it never works out. <laughs> Uh, so I, uh, I was reading something on behavioral economics the other day, and they identified like 62 biases that people have just in business. You know, the, the most recent is the only one that matters, the, um, the idea that um, you don't need as much capital as you really do need, you know, all those kinds of things. You go, well, that's, that's true. People, people find all kinds of ways to move on with what they want without really paying attention to the bias they have to make that happen. So, um, and it's uh, so it, it, it does go back to, uh, you know, you learn something about yourself all the time. All the time, exactly. Self-awareness. So, you know, because we all have these biases. It's not, about, it's not about ignoring that we have them. But, you know, I think from my conversations, successful leaders I'm speaking to seem to be more aware of their, of their biases. Now, you're reinventing... Um, yourself again what's this next decade all about we're into education i think so i think so <laughs> uh, uh, you never know what will come to you um, if you're just sort of open to it um, i was asked by uh, the previous minister of education dan tian a great richmond supporter uh, but he called and and uh, asked if i would be interested in being the Australian nominee to the Fulbright Commission and Fulbright does all the scholarships, um, exchange, cultural and educational exchange with America. Um, and I said, um, we'll have somebody call me and tell me what it involved and what do I do and all those sorts of things. Um, and then the year that happened afterwards is we could never meet in person. So I took on that role, um, which is a volunteer role. Mm -hmm. and. Um, then out of the blue, I got a call from a search firm saying um, we're, we're searching for the new chancellor for RMIT University. Uh, your name's been mentioned. Would you meet with the nominations committee? And I remember saying, me? <laughs> Other than being a student, I've had nothing to do with education. Uh, at, no, I know RMIT. It's in the middle of Melbourne, of course. Uh, but uh, and so I had a number of interviews and I thought, well, Richmond's about over and I'll have some time and I need to sort of get back in the swing of interviewing and, and under, you know, getting a CV together, doing all those kinds of things. Um, but then as things were kept getting another interview and another, I was thinking, oh, what if this happens now? <laughs> <laughs> and talk about fearful. It was like, whoa. Um, <laughs> but again, um, and so then it was offered to me and I, I'm really excited about it. So I, as you were saying, I think this next five years, it's a five-year appointment would be, um, is, is about education. And as I've mentioned, what, what meaning that has for me and my family. Um, so the idea that I would sort of close out this career with education, because that's where my life started and what it's given to me. Um, and um, so, so yeah, education looks like uh, what I'll do when I finish with Richmond. I'm, and I'm continuing with being on the board of women's housing. So I've had, I will be giving up some things because I just need to make some space. Nice. And, um, but women's housing, I'll continue with because you know, I'm just um, really involved with their mission and uh, the great people who work there who do so much with so little. And um, so I'll, I'll end up with maybe those couple of things that will sort of take most of my time for the next five years or so. How have you known what to say no to on the way through your career? Well, I think I've, I've relied a bit on just my first reaction. Mm -hmm. um, is this something you could see yourself doing or uh, how much time does it take? Uh, who else is involved with that organization? What's its reputation? Um, so that sometimes just answered the question. Um, 
And then other times things came that I'd never expected, like these education organization opportunities. And I thought, oh, well, I might want to investigate that. That's 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 worth thinking about. Um, and so a lot of it has just been, mm, no, nah, that just doesn't, something that doesn't interest me, but I just don't think I want to be involved with that. Um, and sometimes the time commitment sort of took care of itself. Like, no, I, I really have promised, you know, six years to this organization and I'm going yes. to see that through. Um, so it's, it's you know, a bit of measuring your values, seeing what time commitment. Um, and I always think if my heart doesn't sort of leap at, oh, wow, then that's probably an indication I don't want to really do it. <laughs> mm. and, I, and I've been fortunate that many things come to me um, uh, and, and I've had a variety of, of things that I could have taken up and, and I've ended up with some wonderful organizations. Peggy, did you ever come up against any of the sort of double binds you often hear females talking about where, you know, too hard, too soft? Um, were any of those sort of labels ever felt throughout your career? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, uh, uh, I remember when I was um, first uh, interviewing right out of law school in America, and I uh, interviewed for a job in the U.S. attorneys, the prosecutor's office. And, um, and you know, I was 24 and really naive. I mean, literally just, just, just off the farm, except it wasn't, we're just out of the coal mine. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and I remember here, overhearing, I wasn't supposed to hear about, oh, I, I think she's just too, the word was soft. I think she's just too soft. You know, it's prosecution work. Oh, you know, yes. and it was because of the way I looked, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I was young and I was probably, you know, said some things that were very naive. Um, but um, but I remember thinking, well, no, no, I'm not. I'm not that. Uh, I will do the job, uh, but I didn't get that job. And mm-hmm. um, and then I remember uh, the job I did get when I was first out of law school. And again, you know, I was the only woman and, and everybody was learning and I, they were learning how to deal with me and, and I was learning how to be a lawyer. And, um, and there was a big case that was going on for years and all of the new lawyers coming in would take a turn going to these remote communities, taking witness statements. Mm-hmm. And it was a really sort of good development tool but I was told I couldn't go because I was the woman right. and, uh, <laughs> and that they didn't think that I should be traveling with the men in the firm. And that was a thing back then that you couldn't, it was like, Oh, and that, and it was so remote that they had rented a house for people to use because there were no hotels. There was none of that. Yes. And that they were sure I'd have to like wash out my underwear <laughs> and it'd be hanging in. I was going, Oh goodness! Uh, it's interesting that subsequently that uh, that law firm had a reception when I went back to visit America, and a couple of those older partners said we were really hard on you, weren't we? And gave me a gift. And I look back on it and I thought, you know, I'd almost forgotten, but you guys were terrible to me. <laughs> so that was a bit of just um, it was just it was nothing to do with my it was just we don't want you to intrude. We don't want you there. Um, and, and that was, uh, you know, it was describing to me all the fears they had about what might happen rather than anything that was based on experience. There'd been no absolutely, experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you said something else that's really stayed with me, Peggy, around realizing your job isn't you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bit about being willing to take on things and failing doesn't mean that you're a failure as a person. Now, it doesn't mean you don't get your feelings hurt. It doesn't mean that you're not disappointed and you sit around and go, oh, could I have done something better? Um, but it isn't, it's, it's not me. There'll be other things that are me, but I think a, a, I don't think you can identify too much and still have a healthy 
a re respect yeah. um, if you identify with the job and that the um, your success or or deficiencies in that job means that you as a person are good or bad. You can't be that invested in that. Um, and I was terribly invested in doing the right thing for my clients uh, when I was practicing law and I loved it. But if I lost that job, other than saying, well, well I need to get a job so I can pay the mortgage. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been so close to a job that I would have thought that meant I was a bad person. And that might've come from early in my law school life, uh, because in America, you go to law school after you do an undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. So um, so by the time you get to law school, you've been at least your fifth year. Uh, and some people have been out and worked and come back and did it and all of that. But, um, but I went to a fantastic law school in America, the University of Virginia, and it takes really high caliber students. I was a, a state-based student in Virginia, so I got some dispensation, <laughs> but, uh, but I remember um, everyone was so used to being top of the class. Everyone was so used, mm -hmm. I mean, there, this was people who've been Harvard and physics, mathematics and all this, and they come down. And, and uh, I remember our professor said to us before the first semester grades were released, they called us all together, all the first years of law and said, uh, you know, some of you will really have a, will get a, a hard blow today when you get your grades, but it has nothing to do with you as a person. Mm. It has nothing to do with you as a person. So you'll just get on with it or you'll decide you want to do something else, but don't take it personally. It just isn't for you. <laughs> and, uh, and from time to time, I've had to have that conversation with young people who've worked with me that this just isn't the place for you. It doesn't mean that you won't go on and find your spot and you'll be appreciated and it may not be law, it may be something else. But I think that conversation is important to have with yourself from time to time when you, and I think it's also important to think if I'm that upset about where I am or I'm still just, is um, it's the wrong place, you know, yes. that to, to know when to leave is important as well because you need to find a place where you can do good work and people appreciate you um, if in your career, because we all want meaningful work and we all want to have meaningful lives and work is an important part of that. Um, but, uh, but it can't be that you don't feel you have value as a person unless you're successful at your job. And, uh, and that's often that fear of failure uh, and nobody wants to fail. Um, but it just means most of the time that's the wrong place for you to do your best. Peggy, I could talk for hours. The audience could listen for hours. Well, I've rabbited on about it. You don't, not at all. Um, but uh, I've already taken far more of your time than I thought I would. Um, but I do want to ask the last question I ask of everybody. And that is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean? And do you think it needs to change? Well, uh, brave feminine leadership, I think, is only possible if you're given the space to lead and if you're given the spot to be brave, to walk into situations where perhaps no one else has. Um, I know the slogan is often you can't be what you can't see, but anyone who's been first has had to figure out how to do that. And I think that's the bit of bravery. Um, and it usually falls on women there, there are other people or types of people or people with different backgrounds who might be a first, but largely our society, that's where the feminine comes in. So um, I think to be a leader, you have to be given a chance. Um, I think the bravery comes in where you step in and go where perhaps no one's gone before, or you help someone else go where no one's gone before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that the bravery is when leadership opportunity presents itself, you take it. Okay, you all heard that. Take it. Take that leadership <laughs> opportunity. Walk through that door. Yeah, do it. Um, Peggy, incredible talking to you. Thank you for everything that you do and your, you know, your incredible, um, you know, spirit of generosity and community. And I can't wait to see what this next five to 10 years brings. Thank you for being part of our conversation. Thank you, Melissa.